Uh, we are going to be in the end of Hebrews chapter 2 today, so if you have a copy of the Bible, you could open it to that, uh, to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, but I wanted to share a few things before we turn our attention to that text. Uh, one, just as I try to each Sunday, was to thank you for your generosity as a church family uh, this week and in recent days as you give of what the Lord's given to you, uh, to pool our funds together and to, to further the ministry of our church, uh, both here in our community and around the world as we try to reach the nations and the generations uh, with the gospel of Christ. So there's various ways you can continue to do that from offering boxes in the back to giving online to to mailing in checks. But thank you uh, sincerely uh, for your generosity and for the generosity that you will have uh, even this week toward the mission of God. Uh, One thing that your giving enables, one small part that your giving enables that we're starting back up this week is we're trying to do midweek trainings for adults even while we have um, children's programming that happens on Wednesday nights called Lost and Found, which is wonderful and has gotten started. We try to have trainings, not necessarily every Wednesday, but a lot of Wednesdays during the school year. And this Wednesday, we're going to resurrect one we started last year. Uh, it's a monthly gathering that we call Pursuing and Practicing. Uh, our church believes in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, that, that he can and does give, apart from apostleship, that he does give all the gifts, or can, the Spirit can give all the gifts uh, to the church, but sometimes we don't have instruction on those about what does that look like? And we don't have opportunity to talk about that with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so that gathering is a monthly gathering where we read the scriptures together, we pray together, we discuss, okay, if the, if the Spirit does give these gifts to me or to us, how do we use them? What does that actually look like in real life? And so it's going to start at 6 o'clock in room 112, which is over here on this side of the building by the kitchen. I'll be leading through that. Anybody's welcome to come to that, whether you came to them last year or not. I think even if it's your first time, you'd be able to come and, and jump in with us. Uh, and be able to ask questions, be able to join us in praying uh, together. And so that'll start back up this Wednesday, and then it'll be a monthly gathering from there on out. But one of the other things that your generosity enables, uh, a significant part of what your generosity enables as a, as a church, is us to be able to have many staff members, uh, people who are designated to oversee certain tasks, certain responsibilities and domains in the life of the church. And most of you know this already. Many of you I know already know this. Probably most of you already know this, but if you didn't, I wanted to share a piece of information with you, uh, is that uh, Marcos Navarro, uh, who has been faithfully leading us in music the last several years, uh, he's actually stepping down from his role uh, here in worship, uh, worship leading and the media uh, that, that he oversees. Next, uh, we've known about this for several weeks. We've been talking and processing. We've even actually already been talking to some other brothers who are applying for a position we're going to be seeking to hire, uh, which will be a pastor of worship and community. There have been some encouraging developments on that front already, but Marcos and Hannah's last Sunday will be a couple Sundays from now. Next Sunday will be the last Sunday he's going to lead us in music, and so if most of you already knew that, but if you did not know that, I wanted you to, to take the next couple weeks to seek to be an encouragement to him and to Hannah. They are dear brother and sister in the Lord. There is nothing bad about them leaving. There's no concerns. They, they are a dear brother and sister in the Lord, and we're eager to see what he has for them in the future, but we have benefited tremendously. I've benefited this morning from the songs that he's selected, the team that he's put together, and I trust that you have as well, or this is your first Sunday, you've been here for years, and so I wanted you to know that, and, and for you to hopefully be encouraged that even as we've started taking steps of, of throwing a net out and prayerfully seeing who the Lord may have to, to serve in this role, that there's been encouraging developments already, but I don't know where you went, Marcos, if you're in here already, uh, but we are grateful for you and thankful uh, for your years of service and look forward to seeing 
seeing what uh, the Lord has in store for you and for Hannah in the future. All right. Uh, if you're in Hebrews 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 10 uh, here in just a second. But I wanted to, to start... Uh, toward this text, and we're going to get to the end of the chapter by the end of this morning, but by making a statement that I think you would agree with, and you've probably felt the reality of in your own life, and it's this, is that suffering has an effect on families. Uh, Suffering has a deep impact, a deep effect on families at times. Sometimes it's a good effect, right? Sometimes maybe even in your own life you've felt this where there's suffering that comes into your family, whether it's for one of you or all of you collectively, and it bonds you together. It strengthens your bond as a family. That's a a very real thing that that suffering can do in families. It, It can strengthen us. But suffering you've probably also felt at times can splinter families as well. Uh, that there's a reason that many families, when there's a death that comes into the family, they, they slowly drift from each other and end up separating or end up being distant from each other. Or when there's been offense that happens, uh, families just drift apart. And, and there's pain that can accompany suffering, where it can drive wedges between us, uh, even ones that we've been very, very close to in the past. Suffering has a way to, to drive wedges between us. So suffering can either splinter families or strengthen families. And you've probably felt that even in the life of your own family. But I think those two possibilities are true in our relationship with the Lord as well. With him as our heavenly father, with Jesus as our older brother, as we're going to see in today's text, that suffering in our life has an ability to either draw us closer to him, to draw us closer into the family of God, or suffering can be like a wedge that the, the, the enemy uses or that we just in our own hearts have this come to fruition that it becomes something that splinters, that, that drives us away from God, away from our older brother Jesus, away from our church family. So suffering can have an effect on us and our relationship with the Lord as well. And that's exactly what this, the situation was that the recipients of the letter we call Hebrews, that's what their experience was, is that they had suffering start to be at least a potential wedge, a splintering issue between them and each other, between them and the Lord. Uh, There was the reality both of Jesus's suffering, that as they thought more about how he had suffered, it was something that the enemy was using to drive a wedge between them and even the Lord, Uh, but also their own suffering that they were experiencing in life was tempting them to move away from the Lord, tempting them to even just drop the faith altogether. Uh, What we saw last Sunday, if you were with us, we got up to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, and that ended, that verse ended by saying, by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Uh, that, is, that should not be lost on us as we come to this text or as we think about Christianity in general, that we worship a man who was crucified, who tasted death. And, and as these brothers and sisters who received the letter of Hebrews, uh, it was more and more known that they were worshiping a man who had been crucified, uh, a man who had been scandalously killed, uh, there, was, there was just reproach that would come upon them. There was this questioning inevitably that was coming to them like, you worship who? Like you're worshiping a man who was crucified on a cross by the Romans? Like why would you worship him? And they, they started to wonder, should we be worshiping him? If that's how his life ended, is he worthy of our worship? And so Christ's suffering is becoming a wedge for them, a potential dividing point. But then their own suffering was as well. They, they, as they experienced this embarrassment or the, this out, 
ostracizing, this reproach from the community they were part of. Uh, There was suffering that was coming into their own life for being Christians. And they were starting as those things piled up to think, do we want to continue doing this? If this is what our faith in Jesus gains us, if this is what uh, this brings into our life as reproach and affliction and suffering, are are we going to persist in this? Is this something we're going to see through to the end? And so the sufferings both of Jesus and then their own suffering are becoming like these potential wedges to drive them away from Christ, to drive them away from the Lord. And so I want to read, with that backdrop, I want to read these verses, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 down through the end of the chapter, so 10 through 18. Uh, I want to read those for you, for us, and then we'll walk back through and see what through the words of this author, the Holy Spirit would impress upon us this morning as we gather. And so follow along with me, your copy of the scripture, starting at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. The author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues this way. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text and what I want to convey through it, uh, its message to us this morning this way, is that if Christ isn't ashamed to call us brothers, we shouldn't be ashamed to call him Lord. If Christ isn't ashamed to call us brothers, or if you want to add in ancestors, if he's not ashamed to call us his siblings, we should not be ashamed to call him our Lord. And this text starts out with a, a simple word in verse 10 where it says that it was fitting for God the Father to have Jesus suffer. Uh, that, that's a, this message that the author leads with here in this section of this letter is that it was fitting for God to have Jesus suffer. It, it wasn't a sign that Jesus had done something wrong or that of God's disapproval of him, but it was actually fitting for Jesus to suffer. And then he unfolds some reasons why that is, why it actually is a good thing, a necessary thing even, that Jesus became a human being And on top of that, that Jesus even suffered, even suffered a horrible death upon the cross. The thing that is repelling the people, or at least tempting them to walk away from Jesus, his suffering, the author is wanting to see, no, this is a fitting thing. It's a good thing that God the Father, as he's trying to bring, not trying, as he is bringing sons to glory, as he's restoring people to himself, 
It was fitting that Jesus would suffer. It was necessary even that Jesus had to suffer. And so I want to use uh, three headings to unfold the rest of this text then, down through verse 18, uh, to help us understand what the author was trying to say, that why Jesus came to be human, why he had to suffer. And the first heading that I think is clear and kind of the overarching thing with this text is that Jesus became a human and he suffered to experience solidarity with us. Solidarity with us. Uh, There is several things just sprinkled throughout this section of Hebrews that show us that Jesus, when he entered into our world, he was becoming a full-fledged human being. Uh, that, that he was entering into full solidarity with us, not partial. He, he was becoming fully human. Chapter 1, which we looked at a few Sundays ago and took a couple weeks to go through, really established what we would call the deity of Jesus, that he is God, uh, that there is no one better than him or above him. Chapter 2 really speaks to the humanity of Jesus, that, that he fully became human. He fully entered into our humanity. So I want to show you just briefly a couple quick observations from this text that show that, that Jesus was experiencing, he was establishing solid solidarity with us. He he was becoming one of us. So if you start even just at the beginning, verse 10, this text, it says that the father was bringing many sons to glory, right? That is a remarkable statement that because we read in chapter one that only Jesus is the son of God. Right, that that's this exclusive title that was given to Jesus is that he's the Son of God. Angels are not, but this text is teaching us that God was bringing many sons to glory. There, there's human beings in droves that are going to be restored to God as sons and daughters. Uh, not as there's not angels being saved and restored. It's sons and daughters that are being brought to glory. Right, and then I love in verse eleven. I I could preach a whole sermon very easily on this one phrase where it says in verse 11 that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is a glorious statement. Uh, It it is establishing that that Jesus uh, did not just, as he looked around to the people that he was seeking to save, just call us kind of acquaintances or uh, people I know, but there's a familial word, there's a familial title that he uses, and he is not ashamed to do so. He's actually glad to do so because he has become one of us. Uh, He he has a sibling full-fledged with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And then he, the author establishes that point that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers by quoting three different verses from the Old Testament. This is a habit of this author, which I very much appreciate as he's grounding what he's saying in the Bible itself. And so he quotes here uh, from Psalm 22 in verse 12, uh, where he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Those were originally the words of King David in Psalm 22, verse 22. That was a psalm that Jesus himself quoted when he was on the cross. It's largely, if you read Psalm 22, about suffering and about sorrow that comes to the, 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 the person speaking. But then at the end of the psalm, which this one is from, there's like this turn that after suffering has been completed, David said, and now that this author is putting this into the mouth of Jesus, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. So like after I've suffered, after I've been vindicated, I'm going to tell of you, God. I'm going to speak to you, about you to other people. And he's saying the people I'm going to tell about you are not just strangers. They're my brothers. They're, they're my siblings. That's who I'm going to go tell about you. And the author is using those words from King David and saying Jesus just as well says that. That after his suffering, he's going to go with, in resurrection, go proclaim how good God is to brothers, to siblings. Not to strangers, but to siblings. And then the, the, in verse 13, there's these two quotations that actually, uh, I don't have time to fully explain this, but actually seem like they come from the same place in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. The, these phrases, I'll put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Those were the words originally of the prophet Isaiah. And the context of that, when he said those things, when he wrote those things, it, and you can go back and read it yourself. I'd encourage you to do that. But it was like he knew people right now, as I'm telling them about the goodness of God and what he's going to do for us, even in the future, people aren't believing me. But I trust in the Lord. And then it's like Isaiah was saying, not just me, but me and my children that God has given to me, like we're going to trust in the Lord. Like, and someday the Lord's going to show that he has come good on these promises. Even if nobody else is believing me, me and my children are going to keep trusting the Lord. And uh, it's like the author here in Hebrews is, is putting those words into the mouth of Jesus again. That as he was going to the cross, it was like nobody was believing what he was saying. They're not believing him. They're crucifying him. But Jesus, even as he came to death, had hope that he would be vindicated and that there'd be a bigger family that starts to come around him on the other side of the grave that will believe the promises of God, that will trust in the word of God. And so the common thread and why I think he uses those two quotations is that there's language of family, right? It's, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Me and the children that God has given to me, we will trust in the Lord. And so he's pulling these language of family and saying that's even Jesus' posture, is that he knows there is family that God is giving to him and that he wants to tell the good news to, that he wants to see trust in the Lord. It's family language. And then as he gets down into verse 14, a few more things appear that, that talk about his solidarity with us as family. In, four, in verse 14, he's saying, He's just stating the obvious that children share in flesh and blood. That, that they, uh, as God gives biological children, at least they share in our flesh and blood. They, uh, humans have human children, right? Uh, they, they have flesh and blood people. And so it says, if Jesus thinks of us as children, if he thinks of us as family, that's part of why then verse 14 says, he likewise partook of the same things that we've partaken of, right? That, that he has taken on a body now. He has uh, taken on flesh. And then verse 16 says that he didn't come, Jesus didn't come into the world to help angels, right? He came into the world to help human beings, right? He, he came to help us who are now his peers that he's become flesh and blood with. And the last one that shows his solidarity with us, verse 17 says uh, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Uh, so it's not just that he could become like us, it's that he had to become like us in order to save us, in order to, to have solidarity with us. He had to become like us in every respect. 
And I, I read a commentator uh, named Tom Schreiner who said this about that verse. He said that Jesus wasn't partially human or mainly human, but fully human. Uh, he took on the fullness of humanity when he came into this world. And he's, he's establishing this solidarity with us. So he didn't just come to kind of be around us, but he came to be one of us, to become one of us fully as a man. And so he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I think we need to take a moment, and it would be good for you to meditate upon this phrase in your own heart and soul as an individual or with friends or family or life group members, is this phrase that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. That is good news that we need to hear because I don't think we often believe that. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves, if you're anything like me, when we have sin in our heart or when we think about our weakness and we think of how insignificant I feel in my life or when I'm, I'm struggling with something, I can imagine that Jesus is ashamed to call me a brother, that he is ashamed maybe for the sisters in the room. You imagine he's ashamed to call me a sister. Like I have I've done too much this time. I have drifted too far. I have embarrassed him. I am so weak. I am so foolish. I keep going back to these same things. What is wrong with me? And we can start to view Jesus as being embarrassed of us. Jesus is like being reluctant to have us in his family, having, being reluctant or re maybe even regretting that he has us as his brother or sister. But Jesus is a proud older brother of us, not because we are wonderful, but because he loves us. Like he, he loves us and he is glad to have us as his brothers and sisters. This text tells us that. He is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. I don't know how many of you in the room have siblings. I'm not going to like ask you about necessarily your sibling relationships, but I am an older brother. I have a twin brother. I'm older than him by three minutes. Uh, and I have, we have a younger sister and I am proud to have them as my siblings. Uh, I, I love to have them as my siblings. Some of the older siblings in the room, I hope that that is the disposition of your heart, that, that even when you, especially sometimes we feel as if there's a big age gap between us, it is very easy as an older sibling to sometimes get annoyed or frustrated by our younger sibling. And we see that sometimes in our lives, right, where we just give the side eye or a frustrated, like, oh my goodness, this again? Like, we, we can get so frustrated with our younger siblings, but there are glorious examples of God older siblings that we see sometimes in life who even when their little brother or sister is annoying, even when they take their stuff, even when they just copy them on everything, even when there's this temptation to be frustrated with them, they still condescend to them. They still stoop to them and like, I, you annoy me, but I am glad you're my brother or sister. Like, I love you and I'm for you. That is the posture that Jesus has, but infinitely more so. Like, with no, no mix of frustration in there. No mix of mistreatment in there like we have as older siblings, even on our best days. We have an older brother who is glad to have us in his family. Who delights to have us as siblings, as brothers and sisters and the Lord, he is not ashamed. If you are trusting in him, if you're united with him by faith, hear me on this. Jesus is not ashamed to have you in his family. He is glad to have you in his family. And you must believe that. Because Satan, the enemy, will tempt you to believe otherwise. Will tempt you to think that Jesus is giving you the side eye or the sigh or the frustration. He is not. Jesus rejoices to have you in his family. He is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He doesn't just tolerate you. He enjoys having you in his family. 
And I just say as a simple word of application, this text is about how Jesus views us, that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I would encourage you to do some introspection about how you view fellow Christians. I think often as we think of the family of God, there are brothers and sisters we are ashamed to call brother or sister. Like that, that we believe Jesus loves them. We believe Jesus is glad to have them in his family, but we almost wish they weren't. Like we almost wish they weren't part of the family. We're bothered by certain things that they do or things that they say or we get annoyed by their values or priorities that go beyond the bounds of scripture. If they're, if they're being disobedient to scripture, that is one thing, but if they're just different from us, we should not look at them with side eyes or frustration, or embarrassment. Like we should embrace that they are my brother and sister. We are siblings together in the family of God. And so I would encourage you to do some introspection of that, is to think, are there brothers and sisters in the Lord who I'm ashamed to call sibling, that I'm ashamed to call uh, brother or sister? And if that is the case, I would encourage you to meditate upon how Christ views them and seek to take that posture in your own heart. And so Jesus came to be a human being, to have solidarity with us, to become like us in every respect, right? He came to become one of us. He had to become one of us. But him just becoming human, as amazing as that is, him merely becoming human was not sufficient to save us, right? If he's the, the pioneer, the, the founder of our salvation, just becoming a human wasn't enough to save us right? Just when he entered the womb of Mary, it's not like everything's done. Uh, like, let's wrap this thing up. Like, there was a life that had to be lived. There was suffering that had to take place if he was going to bring sons to glory, if he was going to restore people to God. There was suffering that would be required. Like, he had to take on flesh and blood, right? Like, he had to become one of us, but then he had to suffer for us. And that's the second heading you see, I would say, for this text, is that Christ had to suffer for us. There was solidarity with us in becoming a human, but that was for the purpose of him being able to suffer for us. It wasn't sufficient for him to simply live among us. He had to die for us, had to die in our place. I want to point out a couple things from today's text that would establish this, that he came to be human to suffer. That, that's why he came. It wasn't incidental. That's why he came. So if you look back at verse 10, at the start of our text today, it talks about how it was fitting uh, for God in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That is an odd phrase to us. Like, I thought Jesus already was perfect. Like, that, that he is God the Son, right? He has no sin. What in the world does it mean that, that God the Father would make him perfect? perfect through suffering. Uh, I will try to briefly explain this. This may not do justice to it, but when it talks about him being made perfect, it's not talking about improving his character or something, right? That was impossible. That, that could not be done. But being made perfect here has this idea of, we sometimes see the word in scriptures, we maybe use it in church sometimes at least, of consecrating someone of like setting them apart, like establishing them in a certain role. Uh, like with Old Testament priests, that's what they would do. They would set them apart. They would do things to them or upon them, say things to them to set them apart to now start serving in this role. And when it says that God the Father made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering, I think that's what it's getting at, is that his suffering that he went through, even beyond the cross, even before the cross, 
was a thing that brought about a consecration of him, a setting us part of him, an enabling of him, if you want to think of it that way, to actually serve as our great high priest, the one who could be a mediator between us and God. It was like a, for him to serve in that role, to be a mediator between us and God, it's like suffering in the mind and heart of God, suffering was a prerequisite to do that. That, that he had to become a human, but then he had to suffer in order to be consecrated, to be established into that role as our great high priest. And we, we see this in today's text, and it's going to be established a lot more in depth as we go through this letter. But we see, it even in today's text, that a sacrifice was needed for our salvation. Not just a priest, not even just a consecrated priest, but a sacrifice was needed for us to be saved, right? If, when you look down in verse 14, there's a key phrase here I, I want to show you uh, that establishes this, the necessity of his death, that like, was essential to what he came to do. So if you get down to verse 14, it says that he himself likewise partook of the same things, so our, our flesh and blood, and it says he partook of those things, listen, that, so this is why he did it, why he became human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And verse 15, that he might deliver all those who fear of death were slaves. Right? So he says that Jesus partook of our flesh and blood. The very reason, the core reason he did it wasn't just to become like us, just to have solidarity with us, but it was to die. Because it was only through death that he could do these two things. Death was the only way that he could actually destroy the devil and that he could deliver the captives, right? That was, death was the necessary doorway to those things. Uh, if they were going to take place, his death was the means by which it would be done. And so he says that through his death, he destroyed the devil. Hear me on that. That does not mean the devil has been annihilated, that he just doesn't exist anymore. He is very active even still today, but he was defeated soundly, definitively at the cross of Jesus. That when Jesus breathed his last breath, having suffered death in our place, Satan's dominion, his rule was done. There, there was no, he still has ability to impact us, to sway us, but his rule over the people of God, his tyranny over us with death and no hope of escape from death was done uh, because Jesus had borne the full wrath of God. Jesus had died a death in our place and Satan was defeated. But also at the death of Jesus, the second thing that was being accomplished in his death, in his suffering, was the deliverance of us who were subject to lifelong slavery by the fear of death. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon on that phrase uh, and that, that sentence. But what he, he's saying is that Satan has held sway for millennia over human beings with this power of death, with this intimidation of death, reminding us again and again, death is coming for you. Death is coming for you. Death is coming for you. Death is coming for all of y'all. You can do nothing about it. There was this slavery and this fear and intimidation that Satan had wielded over human beings since our very beginning. And the author here is saying when Jesus died, he was able to finally set free his fellow human beings from that fear of death. Uh, that, that we no longer have to be bound and terrified by this fear of death because he has faced it for us. He has experienced it for us and shown us that he is victorious over it. And for Jesus to do those things, for him to defeat the devil and for him to deliver the captives who were afraid to die, he had to die himself. 
There was no other way to do it. He had to become a human and he had to go to the cross and die. Death was the only means by which this could take place. That's what verse 14 is saying. It was through death that he could destroy the devil. Through death that he could deliver the captives. Jesus could not have just come into our world and if he intended to save us, he couldn't just come into our world and then dance around death like a boxer who's just kind of biding his time, like avoiding a fight. That's not winning, right? Like that's not defeating anything if you just avoid it, right? When Jesus came into the world, it was to face death down, like to actually experience it and show that he was stronger than it, not just to avoid it, not just to live forever, but to face death, to experience death. I was thinking like in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath, the way that David defeated Goliath wasn't by running and going and hiding and hoping he goes away, right? Because he wasn't going away. Every day he was coming out and intimidating the people and David's like, we are done with this. Like you are dying and I am willing to take you down. Like I am not gonna be a coward and run away from you. When Jesus saw this enemy of death and we saw that Satan domineering us and keeping us enslaved, Jesus said, I am becoming one of them and I am going to face this enemy down. And I, the only way I can do it is by actually dying. Not by avoiding it, but by facing and experiencing death myself. Jesus did not just become a human being to sympathize with us. He came to save us, right? And if he was going to save us, it was going to be through death. There was no other way for him to do it other than to die himself. And verse 17 tells us that when he died, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. When he died, it wasn't just another man dying. When he died, there was something different happening because when he died, when that word appears there that he made propitiation for the sins of the people, what that means is that Jesus bore the wrath of God for people, right? The, the sin that we have committed, the, the wrath of God that was stored up for those sins came down upon the head of Jesus at the cross. Every bit of it. 100% of the wrath of God came down upon Jesus at the cross so that it would not come down upon us. Like he fully appeased the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God. We sang about that earlier. And there was no other way for that to happen. There's no other way the wrath of God for your sins and my sins could have been absorbed by anything other than a human being. Right? Later in chapter 10, we're going to read that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? There is no one, nothing else that could suffer and die for you and bear the wrath of God other than a fellow human being. And that is what happened at the cross, that a fellow human being, Jesus Christ, took your sins upon himself and suffered the full wrath of God. That is why his death accomplished something that other people's death did not. Others die for their own sins. Jesus died for ours. And in doing so, he is able to set us free from the wrath of God, set us free from the dominion of Satan. And I want you to hear me clearly on this, that this death of Jesus for fellow human beings, this bearing of the wrath of God for other human beings is not universally applied to every human being. It's not as if the, the instant that Jesus died that every person's sins were forgiven. 
right? That every human being before and since is forgiven. There is a smaller subset of people that Jesus' death is actually effective for, that actually are brought to glory. It says in verse 10 that God is bringing many sons to glory, not all sons to glory, right? That he's bringing many sons to glory, but not all. And even in verse 16, it says that Jesus came to help. It's this idea of like grabbing up uh, and, and saving. He came to help. Hear how the author says this. The offspring of Abraham, not the offspring of Adam right? Like he, he's, he's not saying Jesus came and he's rescuing every single person. He's saying he came to rescue the offspring of Abraham as shorthand, we'll see later, to talk about people who have faith, like people who actually put their trust in the Lord. That is who Jesus was coming to save. That's who Jesus was dying for upon the cross was not the offspring of Adam, but the offspring of Abraham, the men and women who had placed their faith in him. That's who Jesus was dying for. That's who he was suffering for. And I want to encourage anyone in the room who has not yet put your trust in Christ. You, you're not yet an offspring of Abraham, a person of faith. You're an offspring of Adam. You're a human being who's rebelled against God. I would encourage you today, become an offspring of Abraham. Like put your trust in Jesus, this one who suffered and died in your place. He is the only one who can offer you forgiveness of sin. He is the only one that can offer you eternal life. He is the only one having been raised himself who can offer you and actually provide for you resurrection. And so today I am calling upon you on behalf of Jesus to turn from your sin and place your trust in him. Rest your soul upon him and what he did for you at the cross when he laid down his life. And he will be glad today to call you his brother or sister once and for all if you will turn to him in faith. So Jesus, he, he came to die for us and he can set us free. I wish I had time to preach a whole sermon on this, that he set us free from the power of death. That, he, that Satan has kept us under wraps. He has kept us enslaved to the fear of death. Jesus can free us from the fear of death. And I, I hope that he uses this text today to do that for some of you. Because I, I think there are some Christians who actually still are terrified by death. Like we believe in our heads that Jesus died for me and that he was raised for me. But as we think of our own death, we are terrified of it still. That there is a tyranny that Satan still tries to wield over us, right? He tried to convince Adam and Eve that death would never come for them, right? Oh, death is nothing. Like, that's not going to come to you. He does the exact opposite to us now. He tries to say, it is definitely coming for you. You better be scared of it. You better be terrified of it. It's like he's flipped the script on us as human beings. And this text tells us that Jesus can free us from the fear of death. There are many reasons we fear death. I can't peer into your hearts, but some of us fear the unknown. I don't know what it's like the other side of the grave. Some of us fear the judgment of God. We fear, man, I, I've heard this good news about Jesus, but I just, I wonder if it's really true. Like, I, I wonder if he's still going to have anger toward me. We fear judgment. Some of us fear that maybe this is all just make-believe. Like maybe this is all just wishful thinking that people have come up with. There's all sorts of reasons we may fear death. But when we look at the cross, 
and know that Jesus has died for us. And when we look at the empty tomb and know that Jesus has been raised from the dead to never die again. And then when we hear, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. How can we still live under the fear of death if those things are all true? That he has died in our place. That he has been raised from the dead. And that he is glad to have us be with him. And that he is bringing us to glory. That should dissolve, at least in the moment, the fear of death that holds sway over our heart. That, that we can go to the grave. We can go to our own death with hope. And more than that, with confidence and certainty that I will be raised. And I will be raised a son or daughter never to die again. Fully beloved by God. We can believe that. We can know that. And when we feel that fear of death well up in us. And when Satan tries to throw it in our face. Just like he did Adam and Eve. You Remember what he said to Adam and Eve. He said you will not surely die. Do you remember he said that to them? We can tell Satan I will surely die. But I will be raised. And I will be raised to glory with my Savior. We, can, we don't have to just dodge him and dance around like we're shadow boxing. Something. We can fight back to him and say, I will surely die. I will be raised and I will be raised a son or daughter never to die again. Jesus can dissolve the fear of death. And I hope that he does that in your heart today. And so the last heading I want to get at is, and I learned a new word this week as I was studying this, uh, is this, is that, it's not just that Jesus became a human to have solidarity with us or even to suffer for us, but this is the word that I learned, and it starts with S to keep our alliteration going, is the word sucker. Not like sucker, like, oh, you're such a sucker, but sucker, like S-U-C-C-O-R. It's an older English word, but uh, in verse uh, 18, the last verse of today's text, the King James Version uh, says this. It says at least for this word, it says, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to succor those who are being tempted. What, what it means to, to succor or provide succor to a person or to people is it's like to give aid. It's to give relief to someone. It's like when there's a, you hear a kid crying out and you, you run to go help them. That's giving succor to them. That, that's helping them. You're, you're aiding them uh, when they are hurting or when they need help. And Jesus became a human being and he suffered and died in order to be able to succor us, to give succor to us, to help us when we are being tempted. And verse 18 tells us the reason he is able to do that, the reason he is able to actually help us when we're being tempted is because he himself has suffered when tempted, right? That, that Jesus has actually lived this out. He has actually experienced it in his life. He has been tempted in suffering. And he can help us when we are tempted and when we suffer Right? Often we think of temptation this way. We think of temptation as Satan like baiting a hook for us to do something sinful. Like I, I'm, I'm tempted to bite on that thing. What temptation also can mean, I think what he's getting out here, temptation can equally be like a test, like an opportunity to prove our faith as well, an opportunity to prove the legitimacy that I really am a child of God. I really am trusting in God. That's the type of temptation Jesus faced. 
There was no fleshly impulses in him, right, that Satan could, like, latch onto. But the, the temptation he faced was when he would have to have, like, a provenness of his obedience, a provenness of his faith in the Father. That was difficult for him. It, it was hard for him. There was suffering that would come upon him as a way to prove the legitimacy of his trust, to, to demonstrate the validity of who he is and, and what he was doing. Right? There, you can read about the temptations that Jesus faced. He, he faced all sorts of temptations. I think we, fall, we stop short with temptation a lot and we cave and we, we give into it. Jesus endured through the layers of temptation that we never even make it to sometimes, right? He, he suffered in ways that are, are unfathomable to us. By, think of the sorrow he experienced at times. I mean, think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating drops of blood as he's facing the prospect of the cross. Think of the mistreatment that he endured from his friends or even from his family. Think of the grief that he felt at the grave of Lazarus, and he, he weeps. Think of the abandonment that he experienced from his friends. Jesus endured testing. He endured temptation. He suffered while he did it. And when someone suffers... Right? When people go through suffering, you know this in your own life and heart. When someone goes through suffering themselves, it makes them better able to care for fellow sufferers. Right? It, it somehow, just humanly, it, it makes us better agents of help for others. Like our suffering enables us to to provide this sucker, right? Like to give aid, to help, because I know what it's like. I've, I've been through it. And I, you've probably experienced that both on the giving end and on the receiving end in your life. That when you've walked through trial, it helps you to walk others through trial. Or when you encounter somebody who's been through the same type of temptation and fear and sadness and grief that you're now walking through, guess who you want to talk to? Them. Like you want to learn from them. They're able to sympathize and have compassion with you that other brothers and sisters can't because they have never been through that before. I appreciate that the author says it is because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted. It's not just Jesus kind of knows secondhand what it's like to suffer. Like he knows firsthand what it's like to suffer. And he is able from the throne of heaven to minister to you when you suffer. When you face temptation, when you face a temptation to abandon the Lord or to give up your faith or just a temptation to feel discouraged or you're facing the temptations that accompany grief and sorrow, Jesus is able to help. Jesus is able to provide aid to you. I love that verse 16, that image of him helping in verse 16. is like, I said it before, but it's like him grabbing onto us, him latching onto us to pick us up. I like to picture this with the brother metaphor he has going on, like an older brother when he, he knows the younger sibling is struggling and it's something he struggled with before, just lovingly picking that sibling up and saying, I'm going to help you with that. Like, and I, I can because I've been through that before. Like, I've been through third grade. I've been in preschool. I've, I've been in these places before. Jesus has been in these places before, and he can help us like the older brother that he is. And so when you are facing temptation, when you are facing grief, when you are facing sorrow, when you are facing suffering, my prayer is that you would know the sucker of Christ that you would know the care of Christ, that you know the help of Christ. He, this text says he is able to provide that to you. But more than that, I, I would say he's eager to provide that for you. 
He's capable of doing, but he's glad to do it. He's eager to do it to help you through suffering. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, thinking of Christ going before us in suffering, he said that the blood-stained footsteps of the King of glory may be seen along the road which we traverse at this hour. What he was saying is that Jesus has gone down this path before us of suffering and sorrow. He knows what it's like. He can help us as we go through it. Richard Baxter in an old hymn said this. I loved how he said this. He said, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. Uh, he, he has gone through the darkest of rooms. And when we enter into dark places, he is able to help us through it. And, and that's my prayer for you this morning and in the days ahead is that you would know that care of Christ. That you would know it by the inner work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. That you would know it through the ministry of the word. That there would be texts that just flood your heart with encouragement and hope. Uh, that fill you to endure in your faith. My hope would be that we can be agents of that for each other. That we can be uh, providence of suckering <laughs> of the good kind to each other, right? Uh, that, that we can be an agent of that for Jesus' sake. But this text, it, it shows us today that the suffering of Jesus, the fact that he died upon the cross, is not something that should make us step back from him. It's not something that should make us feel embarrassed about him. But the suffering of Jesus is actually what should compel us toward him. It's what should make us draw near to him because, because he has suffered, I can be forgiven. Because he has suffered, I can be helped in my suffering. I want to end by, by referencing a story I think most of you are familiar with. It's from the Bible itself. But it's the story of Joseph and his brothers from the end of Genesis. And I, I just think it's picturesque with a real family and real people of what Jesus has done for us and what he does for us. Some of you know this story. There's this group of brothers, 12 brothers, and Joseph is one of the younger ones. And he has this dream uh, that someday his brothers are going to bow down to him. And then he's dumb enough to tell them the dream. Uh, and they, they get very angry, and for other reasons too, they hate their brother. And they, uh, they throw him in a, a ditch, and essentially they end up selling him into slavery and forgetting about him and telling their dad that he died and he, he, he's left for dead, then he's sold into slavery, and Joseph endures unspeakable suffering. Like you read through several chapters of what happened to him, and there's this long suffering that he goes through that was undeserved, but he endures it, goes through it, and God, through that suffering, actually elevates him to this place of prominence where he's even a co-ruler in Egypt, like the most powerful uh, place in the world at that point that we know of. Uh, so God brings him through all these sufferings, and he, he's led to a place of prominence through those sufferings. And then his brothers, the ones who mistreated him, the ones who rejected him, the ones who hated him, they start to have hardship in their life, right? Famine is in their land. And they come to Egypt where their brother, unbeknownst to them, is ruling, uh, where he has been raised to a place of prominence now. And they come asking for help. And Joseph, for a little bit, it kind of feels like he's kind of toying with them because they don't realize who he is yet. Uh, he's just sorting, uh, kind of sifting them out a little bit, uh, feeling them out. And then this happens in Genesis 45. I'd like this to be up on the screen if possible. There's this final scene, uh, well, not final, but a, a culminating scene of sorts, 
where Joseph finally like reveals who he is to his brothers. And, and I love this because just think how you would have been as a sibling, like what your attitude would have been like to these siblings who hated you, mistreated you, essentially wanted to kill you, didn't care about you, and now you've gone through such suffering and the Lord's elevated you to a place of prominence. This is what happened in Genesis 45. It says that Joseph said to his brothers, and hear this, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother. He still will call himself their brother. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. And so there, this is beautiful scene. This, this brother who'd been mistreated, and that's an understatement, he still gladly, freely, willingly calls them brother and himself their brother. Those family ties are still there. He invites them to come near to him. Right? That's a beautiful thing that he invites them to come near. Then he quickly tries to offload the shame and the guilt that they felt for their mistreatment of him. Right? Don't be distressed. Right, like I, I'm for you. Like we're we're still brothers. We are family. And then he acknowledges, guys, like God has brought me here to preserve life. He's given me ability to actually help you now. Right? That is a beautiful picture, a little microcosm of what is true between us and Jesus. That we have mistreated our brother. We have rejected him. We have, our sin has led to his suffering. Through his suffering, God has now elevated him to the place of prominence, right? To the throne of heaven. And from that throne, Jesus looks down upon us as fellow human beings. And he doesn't look at us with disdain. He encourages us to draw near, right? He, he says, come near to me. And then he offers us help. He doesn't say, come near so I can hit you. Come near so I can help. Like, I, I rule over all. Like, I want to help you endure what you are facing. That is the kindness of Jesus to us who don't deserve it. Amen? Jesus is our bigger brother who lovingly takes hold of us and brings us to glory. He has solidarity with us. He suffered with us. He offers succor to us. If he's not ashamed to call us brothers, we should not be ashamed to call him Lord. Amen? I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We'll sing one last song. Father in heaven, uh, we, uh, man, we who have been subject to, to the fear of death, we've been slaves to it. We've been slaves to sin in our life. We are grateful that you sent a savior, that you sent your son to have solidarity with us, to become a partaker of flesh and blood that you sent him ultimately to die in our place, to defeat the devil and to deliver us from captivity. God, we are honored beyond words that you then offer us help through him. Not just forgiveness, but you offer us help. May we receive both. And may we receive your forgiveness. May we receive your help through your son, Jesus Christ, our older brother. We pray this in his name.